exception to God's Word, we're in Revelation 20 and 21, and is is our custom. We're going to read this aloud together. You can find this in the bulletin and on the screen behind me. Would the people of God join your voices with me as we read the Word of God? Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we pray that you would now meet us as we give ear to your words. Lord, I pray that I would disappear and you would be seen. You as our great hope. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So last winter, I read a story about a young man named Zach Kesey, who is an NC State grad, now lives in Durham. And this is, he had a very uh, unique story on TikTok. I'm not a TikTok subscriber, so I read about this in the paper. Okay, truth be told. Uh, So Zach did what a lot of people do and intentionally mislabeled locations in his photos or videos on TikTok. And this is sort of a TikTok thing, but Zach's story took an extra step. So Zach went to Europe on vacation And he went to uh, the Duomo in Milan, and he labeled that on his TikTok account, the video of that, Concord Mills Mall, North Carolina. (laughs) And then he went to Venice and took a picture of the canals and labeled that Raleigh, North Carolina. And then he went to Switzerland and took a picture of the Alps and labeled that as Gastonia, North Carolina. Now, this wouldn't be kind of normal if there hadn't been a woman from Jupiter, Florida, Yep. This woman from Jupiter, Florida is on TikTok. She sees these places. She's driving up uh, to go with her family, and she's like, hey, Gastonia looks beautiful. 
we should stop off and take a look. And she drives to Gastonia, and there are no Swiss Alps. <laughs> Surprisingly there, if you've been to, to Gastonia before, you know what she found, rundown gas stations. That's what she found in Gastonia, North Carolina. Way to go, right? And now, the um, reason I mention that story is that you may think, as I tell you the title for today's sermon today, that I'm doing the a Zach Kesey TikTok thing and mislabeling everything. The title of today's sermon, and you just listen to the passage, is this, The Hope of Coming Judgment. I know, right? Who hopes for coming judgment? What kind of church do I go to? What's wrong with this guy? And why are we doing Revelation during Christmas time? Um, hope of coming judgment. It's, this isn't a joke, and it isn't a mistake. Uh, I want to tell you, you know, for 2,000 years now, Christians, in reading the passage we just read out loud, have responded, along with those who are right at the end of Revelation, it tells us this, to say this, come, Lord Jesus, have hoped in this. You know, this is a season of the church calendar, the weeks leading up to Christmas, we call Advent. And I think it should be really Advents. You know how the, the Brits say maths? for math, right? I think that's what we should call the season actually is not Advent, but Advents, because it's a time where the church both looks backward, like, okay, well, let's make the parking lot over there. Okay, that's, that's history, right? Uh, the gas station, that way, that's future. And the, the church has used this time to look backward in history to the first Advent, the first arrival of Jesus as a baby, but also to look ahead to the next Advent, the, the coming of Jesus again, second coming. You know, as a kid, I didn't understand much about why we did this stuff at church. You know, we had, we'd count down the weeks to Christmas, and I always felt like it's like we're, we're doing this big game of pretend. We're all just sort of pretending we're Israel, waiting for the Messiah to come, walking those paces, which is kind of true, but it's so much richer and bigger than that, what we do at Advent. We look back. We look ahead. So here's my title, and it's not mislabeled, Hope in Coming Judgment. So, um, you know, everybody wants to know what's coming. What's coming down the pike? What's coming down the road in my life? And this is whether or not things are going well or poorly. Things are going poorly. You're like, what do I have to look forward to? What's coming down the road? What's going to be the change? What can I hope in? And I find this too, though, when things are going really well, I find that a lot of us do this thing of like, we're just sort of waiting for the shoe to drop. We're waiting for what's to come. Like, when's it all going to end, right? And so this book, the book of Revelation, the title itself means unveiled, made known. It's not made secret, like people think of Revelation. It's what's made known. So we know what is to come. And so today I want to talk about what is to come, particularly the final judgment. But before I do, though, I, I want to talk about what is to come and more immediately? You know, the Bible pictures for us not a one-part future, life after death, but a two-part future. One writer calls it life after life after death. Now, let me show you this in this passage. In chapter 20, verse 14, we read here about the second death, which implies there's a First death. Good job, y'all. Good job this morning. Right? And uh, earlier in Revelation chapter 20, it talks about the first resurrection, which implies there's 
a second resurrection. So in the Bible, we don't have a one-part future. We have a two-part future. And this passage is all about the second part of that. But let me do a little review so I make sure we all are on the same page. What happens when we die? What happens when we die? John 14 is a passage that's often read at funerals. And as Jesus' promise, he says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. And the word there that we use, we describe that as heaven. God, it, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And, but the word in Greek, mone, is a word which implies a temporary stop, like a bus stop or a rest stop on a longer trip. Heaven is not meant to be the end. It's the first part of a journey. This is why Paul says that his desire after death is to bar- depart and be with Christ, which is far better than life in this life. He's talking about that. We hear Jesus talking to the thief on the cross next to him and says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. So I want to remind you of what heaven is. The early Christian church was not as focused on heaven as we are. You know, our tombstones say R.I.P., rest in peace. And it's sort of a miss. The early Christians had this word, on their tombstones that said this, resurgum, I will rise. They were looking forward to not the immediate future, the afterlife, but the life after life after death. This is only reinforced by, if you read the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 6, they're the martyrs in heaven and they're under the throne. And what's bizarre is they're not settling in for a long eternity with God going like, this is great. They're crying out, even in heaven, for the next phase to come. How long, O Lord, until you bring phase two of our future? So let me remind you, heaven is a temporary place on a journey. And heaven is pictured in Scripture always as God's house, not our house. This is why when Jesus says, I'm going to take you where does he say? To my Father's house, not to your home. So we sing these songs like, There's a better home awaiting in the sky, Lord, in the sky. But we're talking about God's house, not ours. There's a larger Christian hope than heaven. You know, at no point in the Gospels or the book of Acts do people say anything like, Jesus has gone into heaven. Let's be sure we follow him there. Heaven is not the point, even though you'd be mixed up with that if you'd been around the church in America for a long time. You know, we, we have these evangelism explosion questions. Great questions. Hey, do you know what happens? What would happen if you died tonight? Do you know where you'd go? Or uh, if God, stand before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you give an answer? Now, those are great questions, but they could be a little misleading because heaven is not the end. As I could say, uh, one writer puts it this way, heaven, it's important, but it's not the end of the world. Okay, thanks for laughing. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Um, And the language about hell or Hades is also sketchy. When the Bible uses the word hell, like heaven, it's a temporary destination. It's called Hades or Sheol in the Bible, and it's pictured for us in 1 Peter as a prison house, a holding cell on the way to what is to come. So again, first death, right? The first phase, 
But this passage we're going to focus on today is about the second phase, the final judgment, the hope, like I said, a final judgment. Look at, look at what we see. And Revelation 20 opens with this picture of a throne room that's really like a, a, a judgment seat, right? It's the throne room, but it's also there's a gavel. And there are books that are being opened of evidence. And then there's the other book, the book of life. And anyone's name that's found in the book of life is welcome into the next phase with God, new heavens and new earth. And I want you to show you this. Remember, as we read this passage, what's defined for us is not a two-part coming, but a single event. Maybe you grew up in dispensational churches where there's lots of, of talk around coming, God's second coming, Jesus' second coming, coming in two phases with a seven-year period in the middle. But what we see here is Jesus returns, and there's the final judgment, all one event. Second, it's a bodily resurrection. It's a bodily resurrection. In heaven, people do not have bodies. There's a separation at death between soul and body, and that is restored in the second resurrection. Right, this is what's restored for us in the judgment day of Christ. It says here, the sea will give up its dead. Hell and Hades will give up its dead. We'll be restored to a body. And this is, this is really important. Um, we will go into the, the future, a whole person, restored to physicality. And the third thing I want you to see about this is the purpose of the final judgment. If there's a heaven, I want you to think about this. If there's a heaven and a hell before final judgment, then the purpose of final judgment can't be just to mete out people's future status, where they're going. There's got to be something else. Why a final judgment? If after death people go to heaven or hell, and that's a temporary place, why a final judgment? And this is, this is what I want to show you. What is that larger purpose? What is that sh- something else? And it's right here in this passage, what we just read, that God's judgment, His justice, is revealed, and it's revealed to be very different from human justice and judgment. Here's what we see in our Bibles. Every time the word judgment or justice shows up, There's another word that accompanies it in almost every circumstance, and it is this word, righteousness. Now, that's a word that we don't use very much. It's not one we think about very much, but it's really, really important. It's really important that we understand that God's justice is connected always to His righteousness. Not in the sense of He is righteous, but in the sense that He is going to make everything right. His righteousness defines his justice. Human justice in a court of law is concerned with condemnation, with conviction, with the verdict, punishing the bad guys. God's justice, his final judgment is so much bigger than that. See what's on display here? And he shows, he doesn't just tell us, he shows us in his day of judgment, it's his rectifying and restoring justice that's on display for this. So I want, to, I want you to picture your favorite home renovation show, right? Property Brothers, uh, what's it, Fixer Upper. I, I don't really watch these shows, but I see them in my dentist office, right? And, and in each of these houses, they, the, 
the, the redesigners go in and there's a dumpy kitchen with worn out countertops and bad lighting. And they go in and they destroy everything and gut it. And then they put in everything new, right? All new appliances, all clean lines. It looks like a showroom. It's really beautiful. Now I want you to think about that act of destruction and demolition. Would, we, would these shows be as popular if they didn't redo the kitchen? If they just were like, hey, we're going to destroy everything. Wasn't that great? See you later. Now, maybe three-year-olds would like that. But the rest of us, we want to see the final product. We want to see the aha. In fact, they kind of tease you with it the whole time, right? They're like kind of giving you little glimpses. Here it is. God is not just doing demolition at final judgment. He's not just punishing the bad guys. It's not just ending all that's wrong with the world. Death and Hades thrown into the lake of fire. What do we read here? I'm making everything new. I'm making all things new. Making all things right, righteous. In fact, so right I want you to hear this. So right that God will remake heaven and earth, bring them together in one glorious moment where everything comes and is made new and God comes and dwells among his people. And what does it say? He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Right? Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain, no more because the previous things have passed away. When Jesus says he's making all things new, everything new, listen carefully to that language. The Latin word for this is palingenesis, like our word Genesis. Fresh start, all things new. But it means that God is green. God is going to recycle everything. It's not God makes all new things. Like God is like weary of this, wad it up and throw it out. But God takes all of this and renews every bit of it, remakes all of it, all things new, including you, including me. It's not that we sort of disappear into some like all soul. You become, how do I say this? A you or you, the you that you were always meant to be, the most completed version of yourself. This world won't become something completely other, but the best parts of all of it made new. I want you to think about that. Preachers, storytellers, we have a hard time even putting words to all this. Some of y'all are familiar with uh, the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien. In his book, The Lord of the Rings, he ends with, toward the end of the series, Sam Gamgee says, are you gonna, is everything sad going to be made untrue? That's just scratching the surface of what we see in Revelation 20 and 21. Not just made over new, not just shiny, Alive in new ways we can scarcely imagine. I mean, the best illustration, and I've used this before, um, this comes from The Lion King. There's the, the, in the story of The Lion King, the rightful king, Mufasa, is killed, and Scar, who's a pretender to the throne, takes the throne, and everything begins to decay. And the movie goes from vivid colors to dull colors, and then black and white. As the land under this destructive leader begins to decay and fall apart. And then when Simba comes to the throne, do you remember what happens? It's like a wave. It's like a wave of color that overtakes the entire 
land. All the vegetation grows. All the flowers bloom. Suddenly animals are appearing everywhere. All things made new. See, the Christian version of the afterlife, of life after life after death, is not otherworldly. Beam me up, Scotty, Christianity. Beam me up, Jesus. It's this worldly. It's this worldly. It's him come down. Heaven come to earth. A new physicality. A new existence in renewed bodies where everything works and is made to be what it's supposed to be. I want to particularly say this to you, Christians, whose bodies are failing you right now. You know, there's a remade version of you that is to come in a physicality that won't fall apart. The reality is every body's body in this room is going to decay and fall apart in some way or other. It's going to stop working. It's not meant to. And we pretend we live in this dissociation of regular life. We're like kind of keeping going and pretending like death is not real. And it breaks in and it shocks us when it does. And, you know, if your body is failing you right now, that is crushing. It is really hard to live like that. But it's not the end of your story. It's not the end of my story. Not at all. Eternal, personal, bodily existence with God. This is what we hope for as Christians. In a new heaven and new earth, that is your future. That is what's to come. Like the rest of all the restoration, He is going to make you new too. And, and this is a big and. I want you to hear this. God's judgment is His coming in righteousness at the last day to reclaim His creation for Himself in a way that will bring, I don't even know how to say this otherwise, justification for everything else that's gone on. And I don't mean justification like the theology word. I mean like a logical reason. Like, why did it have to go like this? You know, the second coming in His righteousness. This is what righteousness of God is all about. This is why we really need to hold on to this and justice together. In His righteousness, the second coming of Jesus will make things right, so very right, that even, it even justifies all that was wrong and sad in this world. It makes sense of it. It provides a logical explanation. Let me say that again. In His righteousness, the second coming of Christ will make things right, so right, that it will even give justification for all that was wrong, all that was evil, all that was broken. His righting all wrongs will do so in a way that doesn't just resolve and heal and restore, but explain. Make it make sense. Listen to how Fedor Dostoevsky says this. The brothers Karamazov, he says this, I believe like a child. I believe like a child that the suffering of this earth will be healed and made up for. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting, comforting of all resentments, of the atonement for all crimes of humanity, all the blood that they've shed, and it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that's happened. Where does that come from? Right here. Dostoevsky was reading Revelation. His character there is hoping for and longing for the time when terrorists and school shootings and cancer and corrupt politicians and predatory preachers and all of that is no more. 
And it will make sense. It'll make sense. This is why, do you understand? I mean, this is why we talk about the hope of coming judgment. That's, I'm not mislabeling something on purpose. You understand why Christians have attached those two phrases together and held on to them like a life raft in the ocean in the middle of a hurricane. Because we know we live in the land of shadow. We know that this is not lasting and it's not right. It's filled with, this world's filled with injustice and oppression. And to have such a hope, man, to have a hope like this, that there will be an end that makes right all the middle of the story, man, that's what we cling to. I mean, Christians throughout the age, our forefathers and foremothers, they've held on to this passage for dear life. The Christians in the Colosseum, the Christians who suffered under the American slave trade, Pol Pot, Stalin, Hitler, the Chinese government today, martyrdom in northern India. And what I found, though, you know, what we see is that the people who are least in touch with the hardness of life, with the injustice of life, with all that's wrong, are often the people who shrink back from the hope that's found in final judgment. You know, those who least want Jesus to return are often those who've known no real suffering, no injustice in this life. One, one uh, famous believer who I really appreciate is uh, Miroslav Volf. He is a Croatian, watched his country be torn apart by civil war, saw all kinds of atrocities. In his book, Exclusion and Embrace, he writes this, If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make an end to final violence, that would be a God not worthy of our worship. You hear what he's saying? This hope, this is what he clings to. This is what makes sense of this life for Wolf. There's an old Christmas um, carol that's called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Not one we sing a whole lot. But it carries the tension that we feel. And I love it because this is how the words go. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play and mild and sweet. The songs repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But listen to this. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth. I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Do you feel it? Between the past, the first coming, and the second, we live in the tension. We live in this place, darkness, the land of shadow. And he goes on, he presses into this, and this is what he says. Then rang the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. You know, I've been a pastor a long time, and I've walked with a lot of people through a lot of hard things and sad things. And when hardship and suffering come into their lives, everybody asks the same two questions. They're almost always the same two questions. One, why did God allow this? And two, why isn't he doing anything about it? And, you know, for the first question, why did God allow this? I have no answers. You know, as a pastor, I can weep with those who weep. I can walk alongside. But the only answer is that we, is we trust in the goodness of God, like we sang about this morning. There's no logic that we have right now that makes sense of that. And the second question, 
Why won't God do something about it? Is really a question that goes like this. Why won't God do something about it now, today? And of course he can, and he may, and that's why we pray. But the real answer that Christians have is he will. He will. He will put it all right. I can't talk about the hope of finding final judgment without also talking about the terror of final judgment. I'm going to just say a couple words about this. And let's be honest. I mean, most of us, if we had to attach a descriptor, an adjective to final judgment, it would be scary, terrible, fearful. There's a real judgment to come, not just for killers and terrorists, but nice people like us, like the people in this room. An eternal reckoning for everything that's wrong. And so for us to say, come Lord Jesus, bring this end, is to ask God to make things right, including with us, which is frightening. And people, we may not feel this to be true. I mean, doesn't it feel like life just sort of goes on year after year? You know, the promise of Hebrews that nothing in creation is hidden at all from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid before Him, the, before the eyes of Him too much, whom we must give an account. I mean, that seems like it's not happening. And this is not a very popular notion to talk about, is it? I mean, like a final day of judgment... An American church doesn't usually put on our website, hey, we believe in the final judgment. Come join us. Nobody's going to be like, yeah, I want to be part of that church. We hide this doctrine under our beds. We don't put it on our banners, right? Uh, And the reverse is true. We don't want to talk about this so much, you know, that like the church might as well be saying, to hell with hell. Don't want to talk about that. But the cruelest thing we can do is pretend that this isn't real. You know, and sadly and increasingly, this is what Christians want to do. A true opium of the people is a belief in nothingness after death. You know, it's funny. Our Advent calendars are now named, our Advent wreaths, we name the candles peace, hope, joy, love. Do you know the old name for those candles? Heaven, hell, death, and judgment. That's what they used to celebrate at Advent. It's remembering. And so here's my call to you today. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ... The wisest thing you can do, the most expedient thing to do, is to run to the judge. The hand, he's got the gavel in his hand, and he also has nails in the hand. Because our judge is a gracious Savior. He is a gracious Savior of sinners. And the wisest thing you can do is run to him. He has been gracious over and over in this church. This church is filled with a lot of committed sinners. And God has shown his mercy over and over again. There's room for more. Come to him. This passage also gives us a sense of urgency. It's an urgency to this life now. You know, my family loves to watch, we watch the great British baking show. And one aspect of that show that I think has got to be nerve-wracking is they're always calling up out how much time is left before you're done. So, bakers, you have one hour left, right? <laughs> Bakers, you have 30 minutes left. Bakers, you have five minutes left. Bakers, you're done, right? Like, you know, they just build this up, right? And you see them as the time gets shorter. They're like more and more like frantic, finally throwing stuff together just to get it on the plate, right? And there's something about living as a people of Advent expectation of a second coming that we get weary in the waiting, 
don't we? You know, what's odd to me, we could say there's one thing in the whole universe Jesus doesn't know. It's what the Bible tells us. One thing, do you know that there's one thing Jesus doesn't know? It tells us only God the Father knows when he's returning. And it's hard to live a life where we're always feeling like there's one minute left. And yet we need to hear this over and over again. A solid vision and hope of what's to come helps us to live with wide-eyed sobriety of what this life is. To care about the eternal destiny of your family members and your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends. Here's the truth of Scripture. Everybody lives forever somewhere. Everybody will live forever somewhere, either in the new heavens, new earth with God, or apart from Him. And therefore, it's really important for us to believe that condemnation is real, and it's time to be honest with people, because that is the only way to show love. Risking your reputation to be bold in your prayers and inviting in your words and your actions. The time is short. The second sense of urgency that we need to reclaim is that it's time for us to stop mislabeling this life. Like the guy, Zach Kesey, he mislabeled the Alps as Gastonia. We're in danger all the time of trying to put the little label heaven on experiences and moments in this life. You know, family reunion, Christmas time, time with family. You know, this weekend, we always expect it's going to be heaven on earth. We're disappointed. And the reality is we are trying so hard to make this world hopes and joys into eternal ones, and it doesn't bear up. It's like Gastonia when you expect the Alps. You aren't home yet. Let me finish with this. When Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, was president, he was famous for his hunting trips. He loved to go big game hunting. And in 1905, he took a trip to Africa. And of course, this is before airline travel. So he travels on a steamship and goes and shoots all kinds of big animals and brings back parts of their body, heads and stuff on boards and, you know, to bring back to the White House. And as he returns... He returns into New York Harbor to great fanfare. There's a marching band. There's a ticker tape parade. There's reporters waiting to find out, how was the trip, Mr. President? What did you get? And all these things. You know, on that same ship was an older couple, Mr. and Mrs. Henry Morrison, who'd served for 40 years as missionaries in Africa. And they're returning to America for retirement after 40 years on the field. And no one met them at the dock. No one came and cheered them. There was no ticker tape parade or marching band or reporters. They had an address and they made their way down the gangplank onto the dock and made their way slowly to the apartment where they would live out the rest of their days. And the first few days around the apartment, Henry just was agitated and frustrated and angry and there was bitterness in him. And he finally kind of blurted out, I'm so angry. You know, where, where, was, where were the crowds to welcome us? Where, where were the people to tell us welcome home? Where were the ones who were supposed to celebrate what we did for the Lord? And his wife says to him what you know she's going to say. 
But Henry, we aren't home yet. We're not home. We need to stop pretending that we are. Have an eye for what's to come. There is a deep and incredible hope for us that God holds out for his people that helps us to live with a sense of open-eyed love for others, sense of right expectation about this world, and a sense of earnest longing for what's to come. That's our hope. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. There's nothing like your word. It tells us things, though, that are hard to hear. And Lord, this has been a heavy sermon to preach, and I'm sure even a heavier one to hear this morning. Lord, would you fix our eyes and our hearts on what is lasting and what's not what's temporal? Lord, teach us to hope. We've forgotten how to hope. Lord, we pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who came and is coming again. Amen. Let's sing these truths to one another, those things we've read about and preached about this morning. Would you stand with me?